Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Matt Leffler-Shulman, and if you're not familiar with Matt, Matt is a co-owner of Mobtown Studios in Baltimore, and he has produced and mixed, but he's primarily a mastering engineer these days, and he has worked with a wide range of artists, including Future Islands, Waka Flocka Flame, Sun Club, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, and a whole bunch more. And in this conversation, we have a great chat about taking a big picture approach to your work, whether that means the work that you do with mixing or mastering, whether that means starting up a studio business and focusing on the things that really matter and not actually getting caught up in things like gear or things that are just going to put you in debt. The theme of taking a big picture approach to everything is, a, is something that comes up throughout this whole conversation, but I think it's a really important conversation to have because it's so easy to get caught up in the things that people say you're supposed to do or the things that you're supposed to have to be a professional in this industry. But when you take a big picture approach to things, it really does put into perspective the things that are actually important and and that really matter. So in this conversation, we talk about some things like, you know, whether you can actually mix or master on headphones, whether it matters what levels you master your tracks to, whether it matters how much gear you have or what kind of gear you have. So we get into all sorts of great stuff in this conversation that I think is really important for people to hear because it's very easy to fall into a trap of feeling inadequate to other people or comparing yourself constantly and, you know, thinking that the reason why someone else is getting great sounds is because they have certain things that you don't and all that kind of stuff. So in this conversation, we talk about all the big picture stuff, but we also talk about imposter syndrome and how to battle that as well. So yeah, this is a really great conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it and find a lot of great stuff from it. So let's just jump right into the interview. Matt Luffler Shulman, how you doing, man? Thanks for being on the Master Mix podcast. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course. For people who might not know you or aren't familiar with your work, can you give us that background story on how you got into music and mixing and mastering and all the cool stuff that you're working on these days? Sure. Well, I mean, it's a long story and it started when I was a kid listening to music with my father and transferring records to cassette tapes and being fascinated with that process and, you know, hearing how it sounded using different cassette tapes, you know, high bias, low bias, and, you know, how it changed the sound. And, you know, from there, high school happened and I was in bands and there was always a four track lying around and I was the guy who ended up pressing all the buttons and figuring it out. And sort of that that sparked my interest in, you know, eventually pursuing a career in that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's been a long process, and I've done a lot of things along the way. And, you know, it's got me to where I am now being a, a mastering engineer. That's awesome. So, yeah, and I, I guess it is kind of full circle in that, you know back when I was like six years old and seven years old, making those mixtapes and, you know, hearing the nuance of everything of, you know, the different, you know, formulas of tape and, you know, how it sounded. It's like all that nuance is sort of like come full circle with, with mastering where, you know, you pop in a half DB here and it like can totally change, you know, the feel and the vibe of something in that, you know, same way that a cassette tape could, a different formula of cassette tape could. Of course. Was your dad just like an audiophile or was he an engineer himself or? The irony is, is yes, he he is an engineer by trade, a mechanical engineer, but he couldn't change a light bulb for the life of him. (laughs) So it is, it is kind of funny how, yes, I, I, we do have that history of, um, you know, engineering in the family and his father was actually an entrepreneur as well. So there's definitely, you know, some of that coming through the DNA, I, I presume. That's cool. It always, like, I, I always get a laugh out of like us calling ourselves audio engineers because I feel like the work that we do is like compared to other forms of engineering, I, I, it doesn't feel like engineering to me sometimes, you know? <laughs> I, I guess maybe because we're having fun with it that it's not taken as seriously, perhaps? Maybe. I don't know. Sometimes it's like, uh, you know, I'm a drummer, so I feel like I can make fun of myself for this, but like, I feel like, you know, drummers calling their seat a throne. It's like, just, just like, it's just like propping yourself up a little bit, you know? 
Totally. No, I'm with you too. I'm, I'm a recovering drummer as well. So, uh, yeah. yeah, no, totally. Yeah. However we can do it, you know, however we can, you know, feed our ego, we'll do it. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But that's cool. So, so when you were like young and doing these tape transfers, like what were you transferring these tapes for? Or like, was it like something specific, like, like a specific project that your dad was doing? Or was it just like something he did for fun or like... Well, it was, it was you know, just me making mixtapes so, you know, I could listen on my boombox in my room and not have gotcha. to, like, you know, right. It was, you know, for convenience. And then eventually it was, you know, recording off the radio to make mixtapes and then CDs to cassettes for your friends, um, you know, gotcha. in the 80s and 90s doing mixtapes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty intuitive of you to even pick up on the different tape biases and all that kind of stuff and, like, the different formulas of tape and stuff. It got crazy where, you know, I would open up a cassette tape and be able to smell like the uh, the lacquer that they would put <laughs> on the um on the cover and i could tell like which la- like different labels had different sort of lacquers they would use um or maybe it was the manufacturing plant that they would use and you could you know you could smell the differences um so it got pretty <laughs> neurotic maybe <laughs> So, yeah, there was no doubt about it in your parents' mind that you were going to become an audio engineer of some sort because, it, you know, if, if you were paying attention to it to that degree, like, yeah, that that's uh, that shows commitment there. <laughs> it was very obsessive and it still is. It still is, you know, searching for that perfect sound. Yeah, that's very cool. So. So, yeah, I mean, you started we started at that level and then you got Like you said, you started like getting into playing with bands and, you know, working with other people. Like, how, how did you get into like the whole production and mixing side of things? Was it just kind of out of necessity working with your own bands or? It was out of necessity. It was also because of my fascination with the audio. No one else wanted to do it. So I was kind of the guy who was left there standing, you know, pressing record and um, and I, and I, and I did like it, you know, maybe at the time it felt like a burden, but I think it taught me a lot. Um, you know, even just the simplicity of, you know, microphone, microphone cable preamp, you know, to your recording device, you know, the cassette four track, um, mm-hmm. you know, eventually audio interface or tape and then audio interfaces. Yeah. And was it all self-taught at that point or, or did you ever have like a mentor to help you with that stuff? In high school, well, I mean, I had the Beatles recording book at the time. I think that was the only one, and that was sort of my Bible at the time. Um, Just looking through the pictures, honestly, and seeing, you know, where George Martin or Jeff would put the microphones, you know, above Ringo's kid. and, um, And I also had internships. I can't remember if my internships were in high school or in college. Totally drawing a blank now. But I I worked in the audio department of two radio stations um, growing up, and I learned a lot about tape editing there, um, which um, I look back fondly doing that, but I would never want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, the the old analog tape days, like they they there is like a nostalgia to them for sure. Like I I learned on all the analog stuff as well, and yeah. um, you know I, I definitely. From time to time, I'm like, oh, it'd be great to make a record all on tape again. But another part of me is like, no, it'd be a nightmare. <laughs> I would love to do it with a band that really knew what they were doing. And, you know, you could just do full takes where you're not punching in, not not cutting tape. Um, and, I, and I have a tape machine here that I use every day um, in my mastering chain. But, it, you know, I'm not editing on it. It's really just, you know, for the sound. Of course. Yeah. So when when you learn on the analog side of things and then you move to digital, I could see that in your studio right now, it looks like you have a pretty analog kind of setup going. Did you ever like any particular reason why you still stick to the analog stuff with like your EQs and compressors and all that stuff? Well, you know, there's that back and forth of, you know, analog or digital. And I, I definitely I feel like there's a benefit for both. And I don't say that analog is better than digital. I feel like I can get to where I need to get to faster and more efficiently with analog gear than I can with digital gear. I feel like when you have, you know, 1,400 plugins in your list, it's it's often tiresome trying to decide which one to use. And when you, when you have a limited amount of gear in front of you, um, you make decisions and you commit to them and, you know, you can move on from there more articulately, I, I believe. Um, you know, similarly to when you have a four track, you're limited to four tracks and you have to be very creative with it. Mm-hmm. I don't fault people for using digital plugins. Like, I use them all the day, all day, but, you know, I, 
I I personally like the sound of what you can get with analog gear. Um, I feel like the plugins will get you like ninety percent of the way there, and and the analog gear gets you like that extra, you know, push over the cliff. Um, and I also like the tactile aspect of it as well. You know, I I come from that era of you know working on consoles. And mouse clicking through a record to me, it's not that it's foreign. It just doesn't always feel natural to me. And when I, when I'm doing, when I'm working in music, I want it to be as natural and fluid as possible. And I don't want the technology to get in the way. Fair, yeah, that makes sense. And and I think that yeah. you know you brought up a good point there that about just kind of limiting your options and how when you have fewer pieces of gear in front of you, it forces you to to just work quicker and you're not looking through your plugin menus. And, and I think that that's a really big thing, even for people who are listening to this who are digital-only people. It's like, you don't need 300 EQ plugins, you know what I mean? It's just like, pick the one that you like and use that one all the time. And and you'll find that the more consistently you use a specific plugin, the faster you get it, at, at it and also the faster your mixes are going to go because you're going to find that like, you know, those maybe 15, 20 plugins that you only ever use. And the more you use them, the just the more intuitive things are going to get, the faster you're going to work. And it, you know, save, save your, uh, you know, save them in your favorites list or whatever, like, so you can recall them quickly. Like all those kind of things can really go a long way as far as helping to get that speed and uh, get that, that uh, comfort, I guess, of the familiar plugin, right? Well, totally. And, and I feel like, you know, with the analog gear, in, in my circumstance, because I'm not, you know, using this one plugin for, you know, four minutes and then this other plugin for another couple minutes, like I use an EQ all the time and I know the nuance of it, you know, I know in my dangerous compressor, you know, if I'm moving the threshold around, it'll start compressing before you actually see the VUs meet, um, the VUs, um, moving, um, so it's like I know the nuance of all the gear before, you know, or more so than I would with, you know, I mean, okay, so I take that back. So there are like four or five plugins that I use all the time, a, a lot of the Vice plugins I use and some UAD plugins. So I really know those pretty well. But, you know, back in the day when I was mixing records, you know, I would have all these plugins, you know, my interns would install these cracks of all these plugins and, you know, you'd get the waves crack and there'd be like 15,000, you know, waves plugins. And it was, it was just daunting for me. So at some point I was like, this is just ridiculous. I'm going to like Brian, you know, this and just go super minimal. And, you know, like what you said, just have a couple EQs, a couple compressors, you know, some fun time-based delays and reverbs and like, that's it. So maybe I had 15 plugins and, and I did really learn those plugins, you know, inside and out, similarly to, you know, how I would work with the analog gear. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, one thing that I've definitely started to do personally that uh, helps me to just avoid that that overwhelm of the plugin list is just I've got a stream deck and uh, I use that with Soundflow. And basically they, with that, you can have all of your all of your plugins like at a press of a button. So, you know, I've just created this, like this deck that only has all of my go-to plugins and that's all I need. I don't need to go through the menus. I can just literally tap a button and there's my SSL EQ or Pultec or whatever. You know what I mean? Like all the things that I actually use on a regular basis, I'm not looking through the menus because often I know what plugin I want, but it's like, I'm not going to go through like, you know, all of those plugins to just try to find that one, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, if you can't do it with, you know, an SSL, a Neve or, you know, whatever, like, there's no, like, magic plugin that's going to do it for you. Like, they're all kind of the same. Yeah. You know, different flavors here and there. But, like, you know, if you if you need that many plugins to get something to sound good, like, you might want to start over again. Totally. Yeah. I mean, sometimes just, like, yeah, really stripping it down and just, again, like, like I said earlier, just focusing on learning one thing at a time. Like, you, you'll learn that thing in and out. And, yeah, I mean... At the, at the core, all EQs kind of do the same thing. So, you know, it's maybe like a little bit of a different EQ curve, like a Q, Q setting or whatever. So it's like once you learn an EQ and you know how to get that sound that you're looking for, you can adjust it to fit your taste and your needs. Right. So, you know, it, there is really no need for multiples of the same sort of plugin. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So so you got into production and you were mixing. Um, and I know that for a long time you were doing just full production projects and mixing projects. Uh, but then you did switch recently to mastering and only being mastering. Uh, so what was that transition like for you? 
Well, so, right. So I had the studio in Baltimore here for about 15 years, and we decided to have a life change, and we went overseas for a year. And then, and I did work overseas, but it was mainly, you know, mixing some mastering on on headphones. And it was a little eye-opening for me, and I didn't realize this until after um, I, I shut down that studio that I I had almost like um, like a weight lifted off my shoulder, mainly because of all the like therapy that producers and engineers cope with working with bands and musicians. Um, and I wasn't doing that, and it was sort of like ah, breath of fresh air. And yeah, so it really turned me on to sort of like the post-production aspect of, you know, the process. And then, you know, so at that point, you know, I was doing what I was doing. I came back and um, I sort of dabbled in working in other people's studios. And, you know, it was fun, but it just wasn't for me. And more and more people were just asking me to master their record. And, you know, at some point, during the pandemic, I was like, okay, like, this is it. I'm going to stop doing any recording. I'm going to stop doing any mixing. I'm just going to focus on mastering. And I had been mastering, you know, throughout those years while I had the studio, but it it was mainly in the box and it was sort of like, it wasn't added bonus, but it was definitely something I did on the side and was fascinated with, but it wasn't my full-time thing. I made that transition during COVID to really dive into this. And I had, I had great mentors like, you know, Bob Katz, um, Dan Coutant, uh, Justin Perkins has been a wonderful cheerleader. Um, there, I mean, there's so many people out there on the, on the interwebs that, you know, are, are such great cheerleaders in, in my world um, that I never really found in, in other sort of columns of recording and, you know, producing and engineering there, there was more of a chip on people's shoulder there, you know, Oh, you don't have a Neve 1073. Like you got to just stop what you're doing right there. And, you know, um, you know, rethink your life. Um, so yeah, so I made that transition and, you know, I will never look back. I should have made this change a long time ago, you know, for my mental health, um, for just the love of music too. Um, yeah, so that's where I am. That's cool. Yeah. It's funny that you said that when you started getting to the mastering side of things, you found like it was a lot more helpful and, and that the community was a lot more helpful with that because I, cause I, a lot of people would say that, you know, mastering is still this like dark art or whatever, and people still don't know what it is. Right. And, but so it, it's interesting to hear the other side of the coin, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm I'm sort of mystified by people being mystified by it, and I hope that these podcasts <laughs> sort of open the the shade to what it actually is and what it isn't, um, and you know, not be so mystified by it. Um, so yeah, I hope we can focus that lens for for artists and musicians, maybe sure. even you know, producers and, and engineers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you know, I'm I'm a mastering engineer myself too, and. You know, a part of me feels like um, mastering is easier, you know, because it's like you're often working with fewer. Well, you are working with fewer tracks and you're not you're not getting into the, the weeds of everything. And and I feel like going back to what we talked about earlier, where you can like really restrict like the, the tools that you use. Like, I feel like that's like a mastering is a perfect environment for that kind of thing, because you don't need to have like all of those different tools for different elements of the mix and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um but uh, but yeah, I guess, you know, it's interesting because I think the, the thing with mastering that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around is just like really understanding the tools well enough to 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 use them to master properly. And I guess whether you're mixing or mastering, you, it, it really does come down to understanding those tools so well that you know how to adapt to different scenarios. So, you know, if, you, if you're learning an EQ, you can learn it the same way for mixing or, or mastering, really. You just have to really focus on applications and and uh you know knowing what to listen for more than anything absolutely absolutely yeah yeah it's interesting you mentioned that about you know mastering sort of like um a small bite so to speak um at one point um i don't know talking with my wife emily 
we when we were overseas, I was like, you know, when I when I retire, I want to be a bartender. I want to have a conversation with someone real brief. They come in, they ask for a beer, I give them a beer, and then they leave. And like, that's it. That's the transaction. You know, when when I'm recording, when I was recording these bands, it was like, you know, these long, drawn out, you know, long time periods, like intense conversations with people. And it was, you know, draining at times, um, you know, playing the psychologist, kind of like making sure that everybody worked well together and, you know, was in their best behavior. And, you know... I, I sort of feel like I'm getting a feel of that now in, you know, the mastering work I do now. Whereas, you know, I'll work on an, on an album and, you know, I'll spend a day or a half day mastering that album and then it's done. See you later. Um, so it's like, I, um, I joke that I, you know, I'm semi-retired now and this <laughs> is what I'm doing, you know, in my retirement, which I'm fine with. Yeah. Well, definitely with COVID, everything changed as far as like attended sessions and that kind of thing. And a lot of mastering engineers prior to COVID weren't even doing attended sessions because people realized that they could just work faster and more efficiently if they don't have people in the room. And at the end of the day, people are they have to listen on their own speakers to really know that they enjoy the mix, right? Or they they, they enjoy the master. So um, it's it's kind of funny. Like mastering is becoming a little bit more of an isolated thing than than it used to be, uh, but certainly much more than if you're working with bands, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and that that was it with me. You know, I, I realized if I made this transition that, you know, I could continue working. Um, and, you know, I have, I have kids at home, so it's like I didn't want to get them sick. And, you know, I really, I really felt for all these studios that had to keep it going. And, you know, how they got through it, like, boggles my mind. I, you know, uh, uh, if I had that studio that, you know, I closed down but had it during COVID, I don't know what we would have done. It was, you know... Yeah, it would have been crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I also shut mine down coincidentally, like, you know, like a year before COVID. And and after once it happened, I was like, oh, man, I'm so glad I dodged that bullet. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I don't envy those guys. <laughs> for sure. Well, you mentioned something earlier that I thought was really interesting. And you'd mentioned that when you were overseas, you were mixing and mastering on headphones. And I'd love to talk about that because, you know, the internet will tell you that you can't mix and master on headphones. And I disagree with that. And obviously you're a perfect example of someone who's been doing it. So what was that process like of changing? Cause presumably you were, you were mixing and mastering on near fields or, or big speakers before. So, you know, what was that transition like for you to just go down to headphones? It was daunting, but, um, I picked up a pair of headphones and I just learned them. I listened to them all the time you know, going to bed and I would just listen to music that I knew so I could get acquainted with, you know, how they worked. And, you know, that, that was basically it. So when I went over, you know, I had a, you know, a good DA and the headphones and my doll and I went to town and, you know, it worked. Um, would I do it again that way? You know, maybe, maybe not, but I know tons of people who do it. I know when Justin Perkins is traveling, he'll bring his, his rig with his Audi's headphones and, you know, it works. I think headphones have come a long way too. Um, you know, those, you know, what are the, the, those Sony headphones that everybody has, like, you know, they're good. They're, you know, workhorse headphones, but we've come a long way since those headphones. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. So what kind of headphones were you working on at that time? They were AKG 712s, if I, recall correctly i went through a bunch of different ones some sennheisers um and those i like the best yeah and were you using any like sort of um like sonar works or anything like that to to calibrate the headphones i didn't um i i sort of had a bad experience with sonar works so i never i'm, I'm sure it's improved you know in the years since i've used it but um Everything always just seemed like smeared when I used it. So I never really tried it with um, headphones, but maybe it's better with headphones. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think the main thing to take from what you said there is that you just like, it seems so simple to just explain it that way, but it, the main thing was that you just listened to music on those headphones to learn them. And yeah, 
Yeah. That, that's really what it comes down to with all of this, right? Like the simple answer for how to make mixes that translate is like, listen to music on your speakers, listen to how they sound, listen to how mixes that translate sound on those speakers and how they sound in your room. And like, once you actually learn those balances and you pay attention to things, then like it becomes a lot easier. It does. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a mix reference uh, playlist in Spotify that I, that I go to every once in a while, but yeah, I mean, I get clients and they're like, Hey, so I'm listening to these mixes on, you know, my headphones, my dad's speakers, you know, the speakers I have in my car, yada, yada, yada. Um, and they're like, so what what should I use to, to listen to? I was like, you probably should only pick one pair of speakers and just use the pair of speakers you know the best. Um, and yeah, like you just said, they're always like, oh, wow, that's just so simple. But, you know, it's true. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you find yourself frequently when you're mastering, will you be, you'll be switching between references and, and back going back and forth? Sometimes not, not often. It's more of when, uh, I have a, I'm questioning what I'm doing. Gotcha. If, if it's doing something that's, you know, I question if it's improving the song. Fair. Yeah. And, and what are you generally listening for as you're listening to those reference tracks? Uh, cohesiveness bass. Bass is so critical. Um, and the relationship between the bass guitar and kick drum. Generally, those things where, where vocals sit. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. It, I mean, those are the things that, again, yeah, you, you have an example when, you, when you're listening to reference tracks, you have an example of something that sh- that sounds right and that, that translates. So it's like all of those things are the things you need to pay attention to in, in the reference tracks. And, and often it isn't necessarily, is it right or is it wrong? It's more of... I've listened to those songs a thousand times, 2000 times. I know exactly where everything sits and where it should be listening in, you know, the same environment. So it's, it's more about sort of that than, you know, where actually it's placed, if that makes sense. Fair. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, mastering is, it really does come down to the big picture and like that, that's the whole point of it. Right. And, um, that brings me to another question that I had for you, which was that, you know, a lot of mixing engineers have a real hard time focusing on that big picture that, you know, it's, it's so easy to get so deep in the weeds of like the individual tracks and soloing things and blah, blah, blah. So what was like, how do you snap out of that, that narrow, like, you know, micro focus and, and take that big picture approach? Like what, how, how do you, how do you get there? <laughs> what's your, what's your advice for that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know that it's even a conscious thing. I think it's just how I listen to music now as a mastering engineer. I mean, you're totally right. When I was a mixing engineer and I was producing bands, you micro listened to everything, every little nuance, and it it was exhausting. But you know, because there's only so many things you can do as a mastering engineer, and there are lots of like tricks and lots of cool things you can do. But for the most part, you know. You're not doing huge, massive moves in mastering. I mean, you shouldn't be. Um, so I am able to listen to the full picture just, you know, naturally. And I don't know if that was something I had to train myself to do. Um, I mean, I've always been a a heavy music listener. So, yeah, but I do recall, you know, when I was younger, you know, picking apart everything so, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a focus thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I, I knew asking you that, that that's a tough question to answer because it, it does, it is sometimes just a reaction that we have. But, um, you know, I, I think personally, and maybe you can relate to this too, is that like when you're listening to reference tracks or when you're, like you said, like when you're not sure if you're taking the right steps and you just switch over to another song, almost immediately, even if like the thing you, th- you were going to switch over to the reference track to pay attention to, like, even if, uh, as soon as you do that, like the whole mix can just take over and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Like it's not a snare problem that I've got. Like I've got a low end problem over, over here. And you know, like something else will catch your attention because now your ears just hear something different and it like recalibrates your ears sometimes. Right. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. Did you ever see that uh, TV show lost? Yep. So there were, there was a, something where they were like going back and forth in time. And I don't really remember the full detail of it, but they, they always talked about the constant and, Going back to my references is like my constant. It's sort of like my equilibrium where everything is like balanced. And then I can listen to that and say, like, you know, the gyroscope is spinning the way it's supposed to be spinning. And then then I can go back to the master and say, what's wrong with this? Or let's move on. Yeah, it's like, what am I missing? Or like, what, what's standing out to me that 
it wasn't on the other track. That kind of thing. Yeah. It's almost like a palate cleanser or a refresh that, you know, grounds you in a way. Of course. Yeah. That, 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 that's, uh, I think that that's just something that a lot of people struggle with. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny because like all this stuff really just comes down to like listening, you know, if you're just paying attention and like just enjoying the music and listening, like you, you'll find the things that need to be fixed. And, and But it's so easy to also get in this headspace of like, I just have to do everything technically the correct way and, you know, overanalyze things. And, you know, it, it's it's so easy to fall into that trap, but uh yeah, just I mean, ninety percent of our job is listening. True, really. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, the people listening to these tracks—that's all they're doing. They don't care right. what happened in the session, right? So, um, yeah, <laughs> I think that's that's the constant reminder for myself is just like, you know, if my wife listens to the songs I'm working on, she doesn't care about what happened to the snare track or whatever. It's like, no. is it a good song? Yes, or no. Does it sound like other songs? You know. Does it sound like a blanket's on there? That kind of thing. So, and and everybody has their own opinion too. My, you know, my kids come down sometimes while I'm working, and you know, they'll they'll hear a song in a different way than I hear it, and I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's true. It's like people ask me, like, how do you get a great guitar tone? And it's like there is no one great guitar tone. You know, it's like every record has a different guitar sound. So, like, you can make whatever sounds good to your ears. That's all that really matters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one thing I wanted to talk about with you is that um, when we first started chatting, you and I, we, we, we were talking about imposter syndrome, and that was something that stuck out. I know you listened to the podcast, and you, you mentioned that um, in one of the other episodes, that was a conversation that really stood out to you as an important conversation to have. And I'm curious to know, like, how has imposter syndrome crept up in your own career, and, and what kind of things are you doing to deal with that? Well, so I always believed in the tape op method, which is use what you have and, you know, learn what you have to the fullest extent and not worry about what other people have. But, you know, we always worry about what other people have and what we don't have as human beings. And I, I think I've always had that where, you know, the grass is always greener at the other studio where, you know, the other studio has X, Y, and Z. I don't have that. So clearly they're better. And, you know, I don't know that I've ever gotten over that there's always someone else that has you know a bigger rack or you know more gear or better room but at the end of the day you know i have to reassure myself that you know the tape op method works and you know you have to work with what you have and you know move on from there and not focus on those things and you know i have to i have to remind myself about these things often but i i do feel like it's less and less these days and probably because you know, I hear from these other engineers that I respect and, you know, have tons of credits, you know, behind their name, and they're saying the same things. So it's it's reassuring. Yeah, of course. You know, that we're, all, we're all doing the right thing. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's so hard to get out of your head sometimes, and, you know, you're always going to... The thing with us as engineers is that, or just as, as, as music lovers, is that we... We, we enjoy music. So when we hear someone else that's doing something that sounds great, it's like very easy to be like, oh man, like, could I do it that well? And and to compare yourself. So it's easy to fall into that uh, spiral of like, you know, someone else is doing something better or they've like, like you said, they, they got more gear. So that's why they're, they're better and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it, and it always comes down to people though. At the end of the year, the, the end of the day, it's not the gear. I mean, I, you know, you always give that analogy of, you know, John Bonham, playing, you know, on his, the crappiest drum kit you could ever find. And, you know, it's going to sound good. Like, no matter what, he would sound good on a crappy drum set. But you put a bad drummer on John Bonham's kit, and it's not like it's going to sound like John Bonham. Like, it just doesn't work that way. And, you know, you have to work with the gear you have and learn it. And, you know, if I got, you know, X, Y, and Z, it's not like, you know, my masters would sound like the person using X, Y, and Z's gear. Um, you know, you work with what you have and, and that's how, you know, you get your sound or, you know, the success you want. Of course. Yeah, that's great. It, that's important here. And I've definitely experienced that where like, I've been in a couple of bigger studios where like someone else was engineering for us and, you know, you get some behind, behind a Neve board or an SSL and like what they're doing sounds horrible. And it's like, you know, it doesn't matter that you're working on great gear. It's it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's that that comes back to the whole tape op method where, you know, you don't need an SSL console to make something sound good. Totally. And, and also it's like, you know, 
I know lots of guys that are getting steady work with just like an Apollo interface and that's it. And then I know guys that are that own like multi-million dollar studios and yes, they're busy all the time, but it's like those guys are also severely in debt now too, because they're trying to pay off all this great gear. So what would you rather be like the profitable studio? That's like small scale or the one that has to have like 15 years of constant income to, to break even, you know, it's sometimes you have to kind of give yourself that reality check as well. Yeah. And I've always been of the methodology of not going into debt for your business. I mean, yeah, I mean, when I started the business, I had a business plan and, you know, I didn't take out loans. And even with my gear now, it's always a trade-off, you know. If I want something new, I either have to, you know, save up for it or, you know, decide to sell something and replace it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, the, the the credit card trap, man, it's like, uh, I feel so bad for for these guys that do that and they go into debt and, you know, it's hard to recover from that. Of course, yeah. Like, I think that... It's one of those things where it's like we it's easy to look at a picture of a big studio and be like, that's that's a pro studio. And if I don't have those things, then I'm not a pro studio. But there you can make a significant living with with barely anything. And, you know, the gear isn't it's not like a field of dreams situation where if you build it, they will come like it's very rare that that happens. So it's like work within your means and with, with with the gear you have, like you said, like the tape pop method and, and just like start getting clientele that way. And then, then when you get to a point where you're like, okay, I can't do something, then maybe it's worth looking to another piece of gear. But, um, but I agree. I think like staying out of debt is way more important than having the, the image of a, a pro studio, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's like, you're only sort of, you know, burning the candle at both ends and, you know, you're only going to hurt yourself in the end. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about was the idea of niching down your services. Obviously, we talked about how um, you kind of niche down from mixing and mastering. Um, but there's a lot of people that will say that you should also niche down even further than just your services and niche down to specific genres and be, be known as like the, that person who's really good at one thing and one thing only. Um, but when I look at your discography... You know, it seems like you tend to work on a wide range of genres, and I'm curious to get your philosophy on on the concept of niching services versus genres, or whether that's a good idea, that kind of thing. So that's interesting you say that, and and um, it, it puts a smile on my face when you say that because years ago when I was building the studio, before we built the studio, we went, we were on the west coast, um, driving from Seattle to San Francisco, and Along the way, we just stopped at, you know, maybe a dozen different studios and just, you know, chatted with them, talked to them about, you know, their build-outs, you know, their challenges, um, so we could learn from that. And I, I vividly remember there was one studio we visited that will remain nameless in San Francisco, and and maybe he was just screwing with me, but he told me that I should decide on one thing to focus on and, you know, be that guy, you know, the guy that, you know records the dope drums or, you know, <laughs> records the thickest guitars and, like, just focus on that. And yeah, I think that was the one piece of advice I didn't take or didn't, you know, uh, implement from from that whole trip. Um, it, it just rubbed me the wrong way. I, I felt like, you know, the music I listened to is so diverse, you know, from, you know, Laurie Anderson to, you know, Taylor Swift to to Brian Eno, to, you know, Funkadelic. It's it's so wide-ranging that if I was sort of boxed into a specific genre, I would, like, I'd kill myself. Like, I mean, that just sounds terrible. <laughs> but, you know, for a lot of people, you know, like the pop-punk guys, you know, the indie rock guys, the hip-hop guys, that's kind of, you know, a lot of those guys, that's what they do. And that's great. But um, definitely not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love working in all the different genres. And at the end of the day, it's like, it's all music. It's all doing the same thing. Um, you know, the waveforms are a little bit different. Um, um, I have synesthesia. So, it, you know, the way I see it is it, it sort of um, translates between genres very similarly. So, um, yeah, I just, I couldn't imagine just working in one genre 
However, you know, talking this through, if I worked in one specific genre all the time, I mean, you could do some like deep dive into, <laughs> you know, crafting that that art form. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like that would only last for so long. I feel like I would just I, I wouldn't get bored, but I would yearn for more. Yeah, I think it's like it's maybe a strategic move when you're. I mean, there's both. I can see both sides of the coin here, but it's like, you know, it's maybe strategic in the sense that when you focus on one genre, you you have an easier way to network within that community of like, you know, like you said, like the pop punk guys or whatever. You you learn every band in that scene, and the word spreads around about you that a lot easier because you're that one person. But at the same time, too, it's like you might not be that great at the beginning of it, you know. So it takes really long time to get into that circle. So maybe branching out to a different style can can help attract new customers and you know i see both both ways um but yeah i i mean i agree like i think i think we all enjoy working on the music that we really enjoy you know like that, that that's what it comes down to so if uh if you're into lots of different styles you're going to enjoy working on lots of different styles and if you're like the person who hates country music for example you, you maybe you don't want to work on country music so stay away from it you know what i mean like that you can you can avoid the things you don't like you could choose to take on those projects or not but you know at the end of the day it's like yeah as long as you're enjoying the music that's really what matters i think absolutely and that and that's why i think we do what we do is because we love we love music if we didn't love music we probably wouldn't be doing what we're doing most most people in in our world wouldn't be doing what we're doing of course do you find that when you're working on different styles of music, does it change your approach to mastering? Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think different genres require um, different methodologies, and you know, the mixes are generally different. I mean, a folk song isn't going to have the same amount of you know bass energy that a hip hop song is going to have, or even rock song. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. You. You sort of. Um, stroke that differently. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So then when you start a mastering session, what does that process typically look like for you? Um, are you talking about like the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah. So like when, when someone sends you a song, like what, what's usually the first thing you do? Um, well, I listen to it and, you know, while I'm listening to it, I, I have an intake form um, that the artist or the producer will fill out that, um, you know, I get some biographical information and, you know, I ask them sort of what they're going for if they know what they want um, or do they want me to just, you know, go with it. Gotcha. Um, so that's that's very helpful. I, you know, I try and get a lot of that out of the way so I'm not just throwing something at the wall and then saying, hey, what do you think? Like generally, you know, when I send the master to the client, it's pretty rare there's a revision because, you know, we've had that conversation ahead of time um and you know that intake form is beyond helpful and you know if i have a question about something their phone number is in there so i can call them up right away or or text them um you know it it, it lists the engineer the producer so if i need another mix or you know something i have a question about something i can contact the engineer um so many great things in that form i i wish i started using that sooner I love that. I think that's such a, a great tip that so many people would never think about. So many people would just be like, I just listen to the song. I start doing work. But it's like, no, there's a step before that. And that's what creates the better experience for everyone because it, it informs your decisions. It informs the, the it, it lets the band know that they're going to get what they want from you. Um, yeah. So I, I love yeah. that idea. Yeah. And I got to give props to Elaine Rasnake and um, Katie Tavini and uh, Justin. Um, Perkins, they were the ones who sort of like I saw on their websites they had, and I was like, I need to do this. <laughs> and yeah, it solved so many problems. But yeah, so I listened to the song um, usually once all the way through. And then, you know, I sometimes it doesn't need anything. Sometimes I just stick the vice limiter on it and like call it a day. Um, you know, that's an ideal situation. Um, but often that happens. It happens more times than you would think it would. And I think, I think that might be some of like, possibly where the you know the dark arts come in where you know uh, a band or a uh producer assumes you're doing a lot more and you know when you don't do any more they're like oh well you just sprinkled some like fairy <laughs> dust on it and you know people also have that you know impression that it just sounds better you know because it passed through your speakers for some reason you know more power to them if that's the way it works yeah. but you know 
I was going to say that that in itself is interesting, too, and it kind of ties to what we talked about earlier with the imposter syndrome thing where like some people will get in their heads just about that. It's like I'm not doing enough. So, right. Am right. I earning yeah. My, am yeah. I earning my 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 income, you know? <laughs> well, there's um <laughs> on the dangerous uh, controller, like monitor controller. Have you have you used that before? I haven't used it, but I've seen it. Yeah, there's a button on there that literally does nothing. And it's like, it's basically for when you have that pesky producer over your shoulder, you press the button and say, you like that one better? Then you press the button, you're really like that one better. <laughs> and it, it doesn't do a damn thing. I love it. But it's like, it's like, there's, there's a little bit of that, I think, sometimes with mastering, where, you know, literally sometimes all you're doing is turning it up, not compressing, not limiting anything, just turning it up. And they're like, oh my God, it sounds a thousand times better. And, you know... That's yeah. all the song needed sometimes. <laughs> I love that. It reminds me of yeah. like when I gra- first graduated from college and I started interning at studios, I remember working at one place and shadowing an engineer and, you know, we'd have a client in the room behind behind the main engineer and just sitting on the couch. And I would notice that the, the engineer was always just tapping on his keyboard. It would just like be tapping, and but nothing would be happening on the screen. And I'd be like, what's going on? It's like, oh, it makes it look like I'm doing way more than I'm actually doing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally believe it. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I do. I remember, you know, maybe a year ago, I was sitting with a client and we were listening back to the record and for the first time. And, you know, I like to listen to the record, not really dive into anything. And he was just kind of like looking at me in this anticipation. And I'm like, you're making me nervous. Like, what's going on? He's like, well, you're not doing anything. I'm like, well, yeah. Like, I got to listen. I got to, you know, get my frame of reference and, you know, check things through. And it just, it, you know, made me think about, you know, what goes on in the, in the head of the, you know, the artists while they're seeing what's going on. And, you know. Yeah. I think that that's one reason why a lot of people are moving towards unattended sessions as well, because it's, people just don't understand the process. So, you know, when they see you just taking a moment to listen, it's, it's confusing. It's like they, they expect that you should know everything right away and you don't have to listen to it. And, so so yeah it's uh, it's funny to to hear that um yeah there's no there's no presets <laughs> yeah i love that though but but i think you bring up a good point that like sometimes you don't have to do a lot to to make it sound great and sometimes it is just slapping a limiter and you're done um so so yeah i mean when you're listening like generally what kind of stuff are you evaluating on that first listen to know if you're just if it's just a limiter mix or if you're gonna have to do a lot more um, I mean, problems. I mean, generally, the issues that come up are in, in bass. Um, so I just want to make sure that that bass is sitting right. Um, you know, not too much, not too little. Um, and, you know, it propels the song. The vocals are where they need to be. Um, so, yeah, generally, those are the things that I'm listening for. You know, what does the song need? Does it need a little spice? Does it need a little oomph? Um, you know, does it just need, like, a little Neve Transformer fairy dust on it? Um you know, you you kind of go through those processes, you try things, you A-B, and, you know, you see, you know, if the the salt you've put on it is, you know, better. And if it's not, you, you turn it off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, lots of small incremental um, adjustments, if, if any at all. Yeah. Does your process change if you're working on an album versus a single song? It can. I think it depends on the album. A lot of... A lot of albums, well, no, I shouldn't say that. You know, sometimes albums from song to song, they sound the same, sort of sonically. The sonic footprint is the same, but oftentimes it's not. I just did this record yesterday. It was actually 15 songs. Um, And every song was different, you know, different instrumentation, sort of, I wouldn't say different genres, but... um, Tonally, like every song was different. So it, it was definitely more of a challenge. It was almost like doing a compilation um, where, you know, there's only so much you can do to sort of like carve that into, you know, a space. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think it just, it depends. Everything depends. Yeah. So if you're working on an album that, let's say, um, is all recorded in the same space, same instrumentation between all the songs, that kind of thing. Is it common for you to just basically take the settings from one song and just apply them to the next? Or how does that typically look like for you? Yes. Oftentimes, yes, you'll do that. 
Um, but you know, there are if uh, so, I use a um, recall software called Session Recall. Yep, and um, wonderful piece of software. If you don't have it, you don't have to be a mastering engineer to use it. You can be anybody who does anything in audio um, and use it. And so, if you looked, you know, in my list of all my albums that I've done. I would say maybe 50% of the albums I do, it's just sort of like one setting for the whole album. And then, you know, the other 50%, you know, each track has, um, you know, minor differences. But I think for the most part, it's sort of like I get a vibe and that's sort of like the the nuance of the record and that's how I print it. Gotcha. Um, yeah, but you know, I'd say it's fifty-fifty. Yeah, and with your setup, uh, working with analog and and digital stuff, do you find that like you you tend to just leave your analog in one setting and then the actual like fine details? That's something you deal with in digital. No, no. So that that was fifty-fifty. So fifty percent of the time, I am going song by song and changing things. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. And then, as far as working on an album. Um, I'm always curious to know how people, how mastering engineers work with this kind of stuff. Like, do you put all your mastering, all your tracks for an album in one session? Do you work in different sessions? I know some people that bounce around, so I'm curious to know. Well, I, I use WaveLab, so um, I, I guess I don't understand your question. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've seen some mastering engineers, what they'll do is like they'll they'll master one song and then they get their settings and then they basically just like import, like delete that, delete, save that as one session um, and then delete the tracks that were there, imp- insert the next song. Now all the same settings are in that one session and they'll, they'll work like one song at a time as opposed to like w- one song per session. I, I've seen people do that. No, no, no okay. I, I definitely, I do a lot of needle dropping where I'm going back and forth between all the songs. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, how you would do that. That sounds crazy. Well, I guess if you it kind of kind of like what we were saying there, if you have like the same settings generally for a whole album, then you kind of use that as your starting point for the next song, and you just replace the the file and you know, just save as, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I, that's not how I would. That's not my workflow. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, everybody has their own work. I know some people do it in Pro Tools, and they like you know checkerboard their their um regions but yeah um yeah i have a dedicated doll the mastering doll uh wave lab and i love it and it totally changed my workflow in life yeah um for the better and speaking of like a dedicated mastering doll what are the advantages for for people who don't know much about mastering what are the advantages of having a dedicated mastering doll versus using something like pro tools or logic or that kind of thing it, it does a lot more that's specific for mastering like metadata and metering um, you know, it'll export a DDP. Um, it's sort of, it's set up specifically for, for mastering as opposed to Pro Tools or Logic where that's set up for like music production, you know, tracking, mixing. I mean, you could do mastering in any DAW. Like, it just makes it easier with a DAW that's sort of formulated for mastering. That makes sense, yeah. I, and I think, that's another good point too, is that mastering isn't just the audio side of it. There is more of that uh, stuff like the DDP and the metadata and all that stuff. And people forget about that. That is, you know, even if you gave somebody back the exact same files that they sent you, but you've added all of the extra CD text and all that stuff, like that's, that's mastering, you know, that's, that's something that needs to be done. Totally. Yeah. I always say mastering is three things. The first thing is listening and listening for errors, you know, pops, clicks, that kind of stuff. Um, tweaking, you know, using all the gear to make it better or, you know, not doing anything or, and three, um, knowing what to produce for the artist. you know, are you, you know, giving them 24 bit waves? Are you giving them a DDP, you know, vinyl sides? Like you need to know what to give them so that they can actually manufacture it or distribute it. Um, and I think people, people often feel like, it's that processing you do that is mastering, but it's like there's a lot more to it than just, you know, putting an EQ on something or a limiter on something. Of course. Do you feel like as people are making fewer and fewer digital co- or fewer and fewer physical copies, do you find that like that stuff isn't like, do you think that that stuff's not going to be relevant in the future? Like having all the CD text and all that stuff? Uh, Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Absolutely. But still... I think it's it's a good 
process to go through in that, you know, that metadata is still attached to a WAV file. And when you import that WAV file into your aggregator, that data shows up and it, you know, it simplifies the process for the artist. Um, but yeah, you know, it is, it is definitely a dated thing. You know, in WaveLab, there is wording, you know, that uses CD and it's like not too many people are making CDs. Um, the wording is like CD wizard. And it's like not too many people are doing CDs these days. You know, I probably do more vinyl pre-masters than I do CDs. Um, <laughs> so it's like that sort of wording probably should be updated or, you know, changed. Yeah, computers don't even come with CD drives anymore. I know, I know. I have this, like, external one that, you know, every once in a while I'll have to do a CD transfer and I have to, yeah, pull that thing out. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, I, I do feel like mastering has traditionally been because of, like, it's, it's a necessary step for physical distribution or, you know, making making your vinyl, making your CDs. And so as things become more and more digital, I, I mean, I think... We'll probably still see a need for all of the embedded codes and stuff like that because, yeah, like you said, like, you know, Spotify and all those services, they're going to want to see that as well and, um, you know, keep track of ISRCs for royalties and, um, you know, uh, or even maybe we'll get to that point where, I mean, we already are starting to see it where you're, you're getting album credits on these sites too. So, you know, maybe that's something that will eventually start to be more, more common in embedding that stuff into files. Exactly. And we, we don't know what's happening. Um, like, we don't know what the future holds. So it's it's good to have it there almost like as a placeholder for whatever, you know, whatever it comes to be. Totally. Yeah. Right on. I, I wanted to segue into the whole, you know, um, Spotify and, you know, mastering to the number. Um, and it's like, uh, I, 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 may have actually, I may have actually heard this on one of your podcasts and it really resonated with me that, you know, there are some people that, you know, master to negative 14 luffs integrated and like that's what they do um and to me that just seems kind of foolish in that you know it might not suit the song and even sort of the bigger picture is you're you're mastering for a spec that is for a company that's pretty fickle and could change and you know they do change they change their parameters of what they want so why master at negative 14 when, you know, five years down the road, they change their, you know, algorithms and they want negative 12 now. And then, you know, where are you? Like, and you don't have the master or the, you know, the mixes anymore. And, you know, you can't, you know, yeah. get it to where it needs to be. I agree. It's definitely so. one of those things that I feel it's this conversation that comes up time and time again when it comes to mastering. And at the end of the day, it's like, it kind of doesn't really matter because these services are going to do whatever they're going to do once you upload to them. So, you know, at the end of the day, like the, your, your biggest thing is like making sure that the song sounds good and has dynamics and feels exactly. natural. If you're making a mix that feels, if, if you're mastering a mix and making it sound super squashed, well then you're going to run that risk of it sounding even more squashed later on or, or, you know, but at least if you leave some dynamics in it, it sounds good. You have that room to play with once they do whatever they do. And whenever they change their settings, it might actually make your song sound better. Who knows, right? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the day for you, what ultimately makes a great mastered track? Oh, I mean, a song that moves you. Um, you know, for me, you know, if the, if the audio's not getting in the way of the song, I feel like, you know, that's success. If, you know, they don't notice things... You know, oh, what was that? Or, you know, oh, the bass is really loud. I have to turn it down. Um, that's that's success. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, mastering engineers also sort of like, you know, sit on the fence of, you know, audio files. And, you know, most people, you know, listen to music played by gear, played, you know, played with, you know, speakers and, you know, gear and whatnot. Um, audio files, you know, listen to gear that's like playing music. And it's like, yeah, I mean, as long as, you know, I think as, as long as, you know, I'm hearing the song and, and I get a vibe from it and a feeling from it, I think, you know, that's, that's what's good at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. And, you know, even the audio files that are listening on like super, super expensive speakers, even them, they're, they're still thinking, is it a good song? Does it move me? You know, that, that's really what it comes down to. 
Totally. They and they they should be. I, I often feel like the audiophiles are are listening to the amp more than they're listening <laughs> to the song. Um, and you know, I I say that sort of self deprecatingly in that you know I sort of came from that that world. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I try and stay out of the way of the song and let the song serve itself and you know do its thing without me getting in the way. For sure. Well, hey, if if you only focused on the perfection that comes out of your speakers and having the, the highest quality gear and all that kind of stuff, if if that was like the thing that mattered to you, then you would never have been able to get into this by mixing on headphones. And, you know, oh, there's no way. And so, yeah, I think that that's a really interesting uh, observation because I, I do find a lot of mastering engineers really love to geek out about their monitoring and have like, you know, massive like you know seventy thousand dollar speakers or whatever in their rooms and you know i often i i I don't have those in my studio i know some people that do but like i'm like how much does that really matter at the end of the day you know not many people are listening on speakers like that so you know sometimes focusing on more of the commercial side of things can actually just be to your benefit and save save you some money along the way as well totally you know i've gone down the rabbit hole where you know i i tried out you know thousand dollar um, speaker cable versus like Mogami. I, you know, when I got um, one of my Maslick, um EQs, the seller gave me this like crazy expensive power cable. So I did A-B testing with, you know, like a, a normal IEC cable you, you know, get at Radio Shack um, versus that like $400 IEC cable. Like I went down that road and, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, that cable's not going to make your song sound good. Totally. Yeah, it's funny. Like when you actually, it's very easy to buy into the hype with that kind of stuff. And then once you actually do the test yourself and you realize how little of a difference it makes and how much more money you're spending on that stuff just to get that like fraction of a percent that maybe sounds better. Like, it, yeah, it, it's amazing once you actually do that test to see like how much it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, yes, there's a difference. Is it better? Is it worse? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. You know, totally. just write a good song. <laughs> and I think, you know, to also tie back to what you said earlier about just like listening to music critically and like understanding your speakers, like that's the biggest thing. And, you know, I've even found myself in scenarios too where, you know, I'll mix it on like some KRK monitors that I've got here. And then I've, I remember like my local music store, I, I knew the recording guys really well there. And I remember they called me up one day and were like, hey, we got this like, these like $20,000 speakers. They came through the store, like we're listening to them, like bring a mix through and like check it out. And like, you know, you, you kind of like, like sweet, this like you know, I'm going to hear all of the imperfections of my mix because I'm now listening on these expensive speakers. And like, I remember going through that example, going through that experiment and being like, Oh, my mix translates. That's all that matters. I don't need these speakers, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're doing something right if it sounds good there. Yeah. It's just like, again, just learning learning those speakers, learning what things should sound like coming through your, your speakers. So, um, yeah, man. Well, Matt, this has been a lot of fun. And I think we covered a lot of really important topics here for people to to learn from. And um, for anyone who's learning about mastering, I think it's like just really good to hear this, the the concept of just like, you know, getting mixes to translate just by listening, you know, like that's really what it comes down to. And whether, and even for people listening to this who aren't getting into mastering, if you're mixing, it's the same concepts. It's like, you're just paying attention to the music, taking that big picture view. And, uh, that's really what it's about. It's not about like the micro details because nobody cares about those. The only people that care about it is the engineer and 100%, 100%. You, you'll spin yourself into a giant web of, of just chasing tones forever. If you're doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, the 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 whole of despair. Yeah, for sure. Well, if people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, MattLefflerShulman.com. And I'm on Instagram, Mobtown Studios. That's the best way. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely include that in the show notes as well. Excellent. Thank you. Right on, man. Well, it's been great having you. Thanks for having me. So that was my interview with Matt Leffler Shulman, and that was awesome. I really enjoyed that chat, and I thought we got into some really cool conversations there. I really enjoyed talking about imposter syndrome and how he deals with that. And I also thought it was fun to hear how he was mastering on headphones, because that's something a lot of people will say is impossible to do. So this is a great example of the fact that it absolutely is possible, and it just really comes down to listening critically to music on your speakers, learning them, understanding what mixes that translate sound like coming from your speakers. And once you actually spend the time to 
identify what that sounds like coming through your speakers, then it means you can work on any set of speakers, even headphones. So I think that that was an important thing to cover because I know a lot of people that will blame their speakers for their poor mixes, but really it comes down to just learning them better. And it doesn't take much, just takes listening. I also really enjoyed talking about working with limitations throughout your process. And he brought up a really good point about having fewer pieces of gear to work with in analog and how it just makes them work faster. Ultimately, at the end of the day with all of this stuff, we're just trying to work faster. We're trying to work smarter. And if you're having to reset your brain every time you open up a new plugin because you're trying to learn that plugin, it can really take yourself out of the creative flow. So, um, yeah, I think what he said there about just kind of working with limitations can really go a long way as far as working faster, feeling more confident and getting better results. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. I hope you learned a lot from that as well. And if you did and you're not yet subscribed to the podcast, what are you doing? Make sure to subscribe. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. That way you don't miss out on any great episodes. So definitely make sure to do that. And make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking for advice on how to create pro-sounding mixes from your home studio. If you're feeling stuck, if you're not sure what steps to be taking, what to be listening for, how to use the tools, and you're looking for a proven process that works, then definitely make sure to check out that website on there. I've got tons of great resources designed to help you out. Make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. In that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so you know exactly what to do. But if you're also looking for more detailed, personalized feedback, and you're looking for mix reviews, and you're looking for coaching, and you want to have someone that can look over your shoulder and say, hey, try this or do that. If you're looking for that kind of help, that is something that I also offer. So if you're interested in learning more about that, all you need to do is just send me an email. The email address is info at masteryourmix.com and just simply send an email with the word coaching in it. And from there, I'll send you an email back to learn a little bit more about you and your process and your current goals to see how I can help you. And if it seems like I can help you and that we would be a good fit for each other, then we'll share all the details and talk about what the program would look like because I only work with people who I truly believe I can help. So if you're interested in learning more, send me an email info at masteryourmix.com and just include the word coaching in it. All right, that is the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.